I would like to welcome everybody to the Hebraic Heritage Ministries Yeshiva Discipleship Program. We are currently doing a study on the biblical festivals. This week will be our transition from the Feast of Shavuot or Pentecost into the fall festivals beginning with Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah. In sharing about Shavuot in the last few sessions, we shared that Yeshua gave the Torah at Mount Sinai and there was a wedding that took place. Yeshua being the bridegroom in the house of Jacob being the bride. This wedding is going to be associated and connected to Yom Teruah or Rosh Hashanah because one of the themes of Yom Teruah or Rosh Hashanah is that there is the resurrection of the dead. With the resurrection of the dead, we will be completing the marriage process with Yeshua. Ultimately, he is going to return to the earth with his bride, and Yeshua and his bride is going to rule and reign during the Messianic era. Part of how he will help her is to teach the Torah to all nations during the Messianic era. Therefore, this session is entitled, and we will be discussing the subject of the biblical wedding. The title of the message is Understanding the Biblical Wedding. If we want to tie this all together in the big picture, we need to understand that Messiah in the Messianic era is the purpose of creation, the reason why the God of Israel created the heavens and the earth. In the book, Sound the Great Shofar by Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, on page 13, he writes, Our sages point to Mashiach and the redemption, that is the messianic redemption, the end of the exile of Jacob, as the ultimate purpose for the creation of the world and the messianic redemption will usher in the messianic era. For God created the world in order that he should have a dwelling place among mortals and this goal will be realized in the era of the redemption. We understand this as Yeshua ruling and reigning from Jerusalem teaching the Torah to all nations. We realize that that is the fulfillment of the God of Israel creating and desiring that he would have a dwelling place among mortals. Then, Rebbe Schneerson writes on page 111 of the book, Sound the Great Shofar, that our sages state in the Talmud in Sanhedrin 96b that the world was created solely for the Messiah. So in looking at the purpose of creation, Messiah ruling and reigning and dwelling with his bride is the purpose of creation. This will initially be done during the Messianic era. It will ultimately be done for all eternity during the period of the new heavens and the new earth with the bride of Messiah dwelling with him in the new Jerusalem. 
In looking at Messiah is the purpose of creation. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, it is written, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. In the book, In the Garden of the Torah, which is Rebbe Schneerson's commentary on the various Torah portions, in the Torah portion, Tazria, Rebbe Schneerson writes on page 164, One of the analogies used to describe the relationship between God and the Jewish people, we would understand this to be the house of Jacob, is the love between a man and a woman. The love between the Jews, or the house of Jacob, and God is a complex, dynamic union. The Holy One, blessed be He, and Israel are one, or achad, joined in an ardent bond. Indeed, the prophet, that is Isaiah, used the simile, your maker is your mate. That comes from Isaiah in chapter 54 and verse 5. The purpose of creation is that the Messiah would have a bride. He would have a destiny mate. This destiny mate, the bride of Messiah, is the nation of Israel or the house of Jacob and ultimately it is the redeemed house of Jacob. In looking at the events at Shavuot, we need to remind ourselves that at Mount Sinai there was a wedding that took place between Yeshua and the house of Jacob. In Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 2 it is written, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your espousals, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. This word, espousal, is the Strong's number 3623. It means espousals or betrothal. It is the Hebrew word kalula. We're told here, that at Mount Sinai in the wilderness that that event is likened unto a betrothal that the God of Israel made with his people. We need to understand that there are two primary stages of a biblical marriage. The first stage is betrothal. At betrothal you are legally married to your mate but you do not physically dwell with your spouse. And Mount Sinai is likened unto a betrothal that the God of Israel, and we understand it to be the Messiah, the betrothal that the Messiah, Yeshua, made with the house of Jacob. Then the second stage of the biblical marriage is called Nesuin, when you physically dwell with your spouse. It is during the Messianic era and ultimately in the period of the new heavens and the new earth, that Yeshua will be physically dwelling and being with his bride. So the betrothal is associated and connected with Mount Sinai, but the completion of the marriage is associated and connected with Mount Zion. In order for there to be a marriage, the 
bride-to-be must accept the proposal of the bridegroom. We see how the God of Israel, that is the Messiah, made a marriage proposal to the house of Jacob at Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 3 and then in verse 5 it is written, And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. Now therefore, here's the proposal. If you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. The house of Jacob says, I do to that proposal. We find this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 8. And it says, And all the people answered together and says, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Do you accept the marriage offer? Yes, we do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. In this marriage, you are going to have what is known as a marriage contract. In Hebrew, the term is a ketubah. It will state the terms and the conditions the rights and the obligations of the marriage that is going to be taking place between the bridegroom and the bride. In the Torah, the ketubah is spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Leviticus chapter 26 where it says, If you will be obedient to your vows, all these blessings will come upon you. But if you will be disobedient to your vows, then all these curses will come upon you. And further seeing that a marriage took place at Mount Sinai, Moses is seen as being an escort of the bride, that is the house of Jacob, and he's escorting the bride to Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is likened unto a hoopah, which is a wedding canopy where the marriage is going to take place. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 17, it says, And Moses brought forth the people, he escorted them, out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. If we look at what the King James translates as the nether part of the mount, the word nether is the Strong's number 8482. It's the Hebrew word takti. And the word means the low, the lower, the lowest part of the mountain. So the imagery is that the people stood at the base of the mountain or the lower part of the mountain. The imagery here conveys the thought that Mount Sinai is a hoopah and the people are standing underneath the hoopah. And they are given the terms and the conditions of the marriage and they are affirming their commitment to the bridegroom there at Mount Sinai. In a biblical marriage, there has to be a sanctification of the bride before she can ultimately be married to her bridegroom. We see this in Exodus chapter 19 verse 10 that it is written, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them, set them apart, make them holy, today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. What is the understanding of sanctification? It means to be holy, to be set apart. What do the scriptures say about how we are sanctified? 
In John chapter 17, verse 17, Yeshua prayed, Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. It's by the blood of Yeshua where we are justified, become a part of his family, but by obeying his word and being faithful to him, by loving him with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, that is where we go through the sanctification process. And sanctification process is where we become clean. What is it that makes us dirty? Sin. And so as we remove the sin out of our lives and draw closer to him, we are going through the sanctification process. We do that when we are obedient to his word, to his Torah. Sanctify them through your truth. Your Torah is truth. The Torah is defined as being truth in Psalm 119, verse 142. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your Torah is the truth. We can also see where the Torah is defined as being truth in Malachi chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 6, which says, And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. The Torah of truth was in his mouth. So we're sanctified by the truth. Your word is truth, and the word is the Torah. When we are obedient, that is how we are sanctified in the eyes of the God of Israel. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, we're sanctified by the washing of the water of the word. You have the same principle there in Ephesians in chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 and 8, we see how the the bride is sanctified because she's made herself ready for the marriage. It reads, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 14 and 15, we can further see what the God of Israel required for his bride as she came to be wedded unto the God of Israel and the sanctification that she had to go through or or what he required of her. It says in Exodus 19, verse 14, And Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day. Come not at your wives. The word come is the Strong's number 5066. It's the Hebrew word nagash. And that word means to draw near, to approach. And it can have the meaning in the context of intimacy. What the God of Israel was doing by making this requirement is he did not want his people to approach him at Mount Sinai in a defiled state. There was a chance that if he didn't make the requirement that was given, that there would be some in the camp who would be defiled. And the way we can see that they would be defiled, we can understand this from Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 5 and 6. 
and make the connection here to Exodus chapter 19 verses 14 and 15. So in Ezekiel chapter 18 verses 5 and 6 it says, But if a man be just and do that which is lawful and right, and here you can apply this to the God of Israel, if he is going to do what is lawful and right, it says, He has not eaten upon the mountains, neither has he lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither has he defiled his neighbor's wife, committed adultery. And then, as it relates to our verse in Exodus 19, verses 14 and 15, neither has come near to a menstruous woman. So this is what the God of Israel was guarding against that he didn't want to happen because then those who would have done that would have been defiled and be unclean in approaching the mountain and being wedded unto the God of Israel. So we see that the purpose of creation is that the Torah was going to be received by Israel as a marriage covenant and the one who was going to enter into this marriage is Yeshua the Messiah. And ultimately not only in entering into marriage with his people, but he would be dwelling with his people. And the way this was personified in historical times, the personification of Yeshua dwelling with his people was through the divine presence or the glory of the Lord. When the tabernacle was built, we are told in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is a spiritual picture that when the house of the God of Israel is fully built, then he is going to dwell with his people, and his glory is going to be with his people. We can see this personified in the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21. And verse 23, it is written, And the city, that is the new Jerusalem, had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, nor shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is that light. The Messiah is the glory of God that is present in dwelling with his people. And looking at the various themes of Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the year. The biblical name is Yom Teruah, the day of the shout or the day of the awakening blast. In the ensuing sessions, as we will be studying Rosh Hashanah, we will cover these various themes. Number one, it is associated with a time of repentance, in Hebrew known as Teshuva. Rosh Hashanah itself means the head of the year. The rabbis teach that the world was created on Rosh Hashanah. It is known as Yom Teruah, the day of the awakening blast. It is known as Yom Hadin, the day of judgment. Number five, it is known as Yom Hazikaron, the day of remembrance. Number six, it is known as Hamelik, the coronation day. It is associated with the days of awe, the days in between. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are called the Days of Awe. It is associated with the opening of the gates of heaven. It is said that the gates of heaven are opened on Rosh Hashanah to receive the prayers of the repentant. It is associated with a wedding, and this is what we are going to focus on in this session, along with 
the next two themes, that is Rosh Hashanah being the last trump, referring to the shofar blast, and the resurrection of the dead. Finally, a theme of Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah is Yom HaKeseh. It is known as the hidden day. Now what we're going to do in this session, we're going to link together this concept of the wedding, the last trump, and the resurrection of the dead. The traditional readings for Rosh Hashanah, and in particular, we are going to discuss the reading for day two of Rosh Hashanah. There's a two-day celebration of Rosh Hashanah that the rabbis decreed, instituted, for those who are living in the diaspora or exiled in the nations of the world. For those who are exiled, Rosh Hashanah is celebrated as two days. And so on the second day, the Torah reading is from Genesis chapter 22, and the half Torah, or the reading of the prophets, is from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 1 through 19. We're going to now look at the thematic connection of why Genesis 22 is read at Rosh Hashanah and why Jeremiah 31, 1 through 19. The rabbis teach regarding Genesis chapter 22 that the binding of Isaac, which we read in Genesis 22, took place on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah. And the source for this is Pasekta Rabasi 40. The half Torah reading, that is from Jeremiah 31 verses 1 through 19, the rabbis teach that in mentioning Rachel, that this is a reference to the ten tribes because their leader was Jeroboam, who was Rachel's grandson from the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim in these passages refer to the ten tribes who will be redeemed in the future along with Judah. That commentary comes from the art scroll Rosh Hashanah Ashkenaz Machzor, the prayer book. On page 402 is where you find the readings, and on page 420 and 421, you will find the explanation of what I just read for you. Now let's understand the connection to Genesis 22 and the significance of the events that happened there when Abraham was asked by the God of Israel to offer up his son Isaac as a burnt offering or an olah. There are three trumpets known as shofarim that mark major events in the redemptive plan of the God of Israel. And these trumpets are associated with days of the year. They are known by the following names, the first trump, the last trump, and the great trump. The first trump and the last trump, these are going to relate thematically back to Genesis chapter 22 and the ram that got caught in the thicket, the horns of the ram that was caught in the thicket. The rabbis call the two horns the first trump and the last trump. The rabbis teach that those horns or those trumpet blasts are going to herald significant events in the history of the nation of Israel and they are going to be associated with the God of Israel redeeming his people. That first horn, known as the first trump, was blown in Exodus chapter 19 and it's associated with Shavuot. The last trump or the second horn of the ram that was caught in the thicket associated with Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah. The great trump is a shofar that's associated with Yom Kippur. 
The rabbis teach that the first and last trump represent the left and right horns of the ram that was caught in the thicket when Abraham offered up his son Isaac on the altar. This is known as the akedah or the binding of the sacrifice. When Abraham offered up Isaac as an olah or a burnt offering to the God of Israel on Mount Moriah as we are told in Genesis chapter 22. It's because of this that in traditional Judaism on the second day celebration of Rosh Hashanah that Genesis 22 is read. And looking at Genesis chapter 22 verse 13 it says and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold behind him the Hebrew word is achar a ram. What does achar mean? Achar is the Strong's number 310. The definition of the word is after the following part. It comes after the event that happened. It can mean afterwards or in the future or at a later time. In commenting about this verse in Midrash Rabbah Genesis 56 verse 9, Rabbi Judan said, after all that happened, Israel still fell into the clutches of sin and in consequence become the victims of persecution, that is by the nations where they were exiled, yet they will ultimately be redeemed by a ram's horn, as it says, and the Lord God will blow the horn, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 14. Continuing on in the commentary in Midrash Rabbah, Genesis 56.9, Rabbi Abba, son of Rabbi Papai and Rabbi Joshua of Siknan, and Rabbi Levi's name said, Because the patriarch Abraham saw the ram extricate himself from one thicket and go and become entangled in another, the Holy One, blessed be he, said to him, so will your children be entangled in countries changing from Babylon to Media, from Media to Greece, from Greece to Rome, yet they will eventually be redeemed by the ram's horn, as it is written, and the Lord God will blow the horn, the Lord of hosts will defend them. Zechariah chapter 9 verses 14 and 15. Now the left horn of the ram that was caught in the thicket is seen as being blown at Mount Sinai. In Genesis 22, verse 13, the verse says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Now, in Exodus chapter 19, verses 18 and 19, we can see in Exodus 19, 19, a shofar being blown, and the rabbis thematically link this back to Genesis 22, and the ram that was caught in the thicket in his horn. In Exodus 19, verses 18 and 19, it is written, And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, that doesn't make logical sense because when you blow a shofar, ultimately you run out of wind and it's got to begin to die down. But this shofar, when it was blown, it went louder and louder. So it is seen that it's the God of Israel himself who blew that shofar. 
We understand that to be Yeshua, the Messiah, who gave the Torah at Mount Sinai and who entered into marriage covenant relationship with the house of Jacob there. The right horn is going to be associated with the end of the exile of Jacob or the Messianic redemption. The ram of Isaac, which was caught in the thicket and sacrificed in the place of Isaac, had two horns. It is seen that the left horn was blown at Mount Sinai, where we just read, but the right horn is seen as being greater than the left one. In the future, the God of Israel will blow upon it when he brings back the exiles to the land of Israel. And we find this reference in Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, which means the sayings of Rabbi Eliezer in chapter 31. A trumpet is blown to redeem the exiles of Israel. In Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, and then reading through verse 13, it says, As for you also... By the blood of the covenant, I have set forth your prisoners out of the pit wherein there is no water. The prisoners are going to be the exiles of Israel. The pit is going to be the exile into the nations. They have no water. They're exiled because they departed from Torah. Torah is likened unto water. They're going to be set free from that prison or that pit by the blood of the covenant. That is Yeshua dying on the tree. Zechariah 9.12, Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. See, the exiles are called prisoners of hope. What is their hope? The end of their exile. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto you. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 13. When I have bent Judah for me, and filled the bow with Ephraim, and raised up, when you blow the shofar, it's like it under the resurrection of the dead, so when I raise up or I resurrect Judah and Ephraim from the nations where they've been exiled, I will raise up your sons of Zion. Who are the sons of Zion? Ephraim and Judah. Against your sons, O Greece. This is Greco-Roman thinking. And this is Greco-Roman philosophy. So we're told that in the end of days, there's going to be a battle waged between those who want to follow the God of Israel and his redemption and be a part of his redemption, hold on to the covenant that he made with Abraham, following Torah, that they're going to come in conflict with the sons of Greece, which is Greco-Roman thinking and Greco-Roman philosophy, and made you as the sword of a mighty man. Now, in commenting about the prisoners that are mentioned in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 9, when it says that you may say to the prisoners, go forth, you can thematically connect the prisoners that are mentioned in Isaiah 49.9 with the prisoners that are mentioned here in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 12. The rabbis identify the prisoners in Isaiah 49.9 as referring to the ten tribes. This comes from the book A Matter of Return by Rabbi Eisenberg on page 132. It is written there. Prophesying about the future return of the exiles to their land, Isaiah states that you may say to the prisoners, Go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourselves. The Midrash Rabbah explains that the prisoners denotes the tribes residing beyond the Sabbatian, which is where it was seen they were exiled, 
and those who are in darkness denotes those existing under a dark cloud, meaning they're not following Torah. Now it goes on to say in Zechariah chapter 9 that a shofar or a trumpet is going to be blown to redeem the exiles of Israel. And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as the lightning. And the Lord God will blow the shofar, and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. And the Lord their God shall save them in that day. He's saving them. This is saving them, bringing them back from exile. In that day as the flock of his people. He's gathering his sheep. For they shall be as the stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon his land. In Zechariah chapter 10 verse 8 it goes on to say, And I will whistle for them and gather them. For I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. The blowing of the shofar, among other things, symbolizes the resurrection of the dead. One of the reasons for blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah is to proclaim the resurrection of the dead. The 13th article of Jewish faith is belief in the resurrection of the dead. According to Jewish tradition, the resurrection of the dead will take place on Rosh Hashanah. And this comes from the Talmud in Rosh Hashanah 16b. The ingathering of the exiles from the nations where they've been scattered and bringing them back to the land of Israel in the scriptures is likened unto a resurrection of the dead. We can see this in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 3 and verse 11, it is written, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he carried me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones, and caused me to pass by them round about, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, only you know. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, meaning the house of Jacob, northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Behold, they say, our bones are dried, our hope is lost. Notice, no hope is associated with being in exile. The hope is the redemption. Why? Because the redemption is associated with the coming of King Messiah in the Messianic era when the nation of Israel will be ruling over all the nations of the earth rather than being subjugated to the nations of the earth. As long as we are in exile and northern kingdom and southern kingdom are not joined together, the verse says we are cut off for our parts. But it goes on to say in Ezekiel 37, verses 12 and 13 and verse 16, Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves. What's he referring to? The nations where you've been scattered. So the nations where the exiles have been scattered is likened unto a grave. And I'm going to bring you into the land of Israel. And you will know that I am the Lord when I've opened your graves, that's a resurrection, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves. So the resurrection of the dead is associated with the house of Jacob returning back to the land of Israel. Who is this? 
This is Ephraim and Judah, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. In Ezekiel 37, verse 16, it says, Moreover, thou son of man, take one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. The resurrection of the dead is associated with the last trump. The last trump is associated with Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah. Rav Shaor, the Apostle Paul, makes this association in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 53. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. That is specifically referring to Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah. For the trumpet, the shofar will sound, and when the shofar is sounded, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. What is the resurrection of the dead? We see the scriptures associate the resurrection of the dead with two primary things. Number one, the resurrection of the dead is associated with the blowing of the shofar, the ingathering of the exiles, the house of Jacob, from the nations where they've been scattered, and this is associated and called the messianic redemption. The one who accomplishes this task is the Messiah, who will be dwelling with the regathered exiles during the messianic era when he's ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. But we also see that the resurrection of the dead is associated with the blowing of the shofar and a bodily resurrection. And with this bodily resurrection, it is for the purpose of completing the marriage to Yeshua and ultimately ruling and reigning with him. So we see in the end of days, these events are going to be associated and linked with each other. There's going to be an ingathering of the exiles, while there's also going to be a bodily resurrection. The purpose of the ingathering of the exiles is to bring his bride back to rule and reign with him. The purpose of a bodily resurrection is also to receive our bodies to rule and reign with him. They come together and they have the same task or function ultimately so that we'll be his people ruling and reigning with him. Yom Teruah, Rosh Hashanah, is associated with a wedding because this day is associated with the resurrection of the dead and we're being resurrected to carry out the marriage process unto Yeshua the Messiah. During Rosh Hashanah, there is a remembrance of the resurrection of the dead. When believers in the Messiah receive their resurrected bodies at the last trump, there will be a wedding with Messiah in the heavenlies. Psalm 45 is a royal wedding psalm. This psalm not only talks about the theme of coronation and kingship, which is associated with Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah, but it is also regarded as a wedding psalm. Psalm 45 verse 1 reads, My heart is stirring a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O most mighty, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you terrible things. Who is teaching you things? The right hand. Who's the right hand? 
that is the Messiah. Psalm 45, verse 5, it says, Your arrows are sharp in the heart of a king's enemies, whereby the people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of your kingdom is a right scepter. This is speaking about kingship, Messiah ruling and reigning during the Messianic era. You love righteousness, that is following Torah, and hate wickedness, that is not following Torah. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. Messiah will be king over all the earth during the Messianic era. All your garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made you glad. Isaiah 45 verse 9. King's daughters were among your honorable women. Upon your right hand did stand the queen of gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget also your own people in your father's house. So shall the king greatly desire your beauty. This is the king, Messiah, desiring the beauty of his bride. For he is your Lord, and worship you him. The bride will give her honor unto her husband. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with the gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat your favor. Psalm 45, verses 13 through 15. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. She's beautiful. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto you. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. The bride is brought into the king's palace. Now, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, we see the marriage of Messiah to his bride. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arraigned in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Once again, there are two primary stages of the biblical marriage. The first is betrothal, the second is where you consummate the marriage and you physically dwell and live with your mate. During betrothal, you are legally married to your spouse, but you do not physically dwell with your mate. Spiritually, whenever we receive Yeshua into our hearts and our lives, we are betrothed to him, he being our bridegroom. At this time, when we accept Yeshua into our hearts and our lives as the Messiah, and receive forgiveness of our sins we are legally married to him we are members of the family of, of yeshua but we're not physically dwelling with him this physical dwelling will be initially during the messianic era when he rules and reigns on the earth and also and ultimately during the time of the new heavens and the new earth in the heavenly jerusalem now let's look at the 12 steps in the ancient Israel wedding and see how that's associated with Yeshua's relationship with his people. The God of Israel gave various customs. One of these customs is the ancient Israel wedding ceremony and services and ceremonies to the nation of Israel as we're told in Romans chapter 3 verse 2 and Romans chapter 9 verse 4. And these things will teach us about the future coming of the Messiah. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. One of these customs is the biblical wedding custom. With that in mind, let's examine the ancient biblical wedding ceremony which the God of Israel gave to the nation of Israel. 
the ancient biblical wedding ceremony which the God of Israel gave to the nation of Israel will teach us about our wedding to Yeshua the Messiah. This ceremony consisted of 12 steps. The first step is the selection of the bride. In ancient Israel, the bride was usually chosen by the father of the bridegroom. The father would send his most trusted servant, known as the agent of the father, to search out the bride. An example of this is in Genesis chapter 24, where Abraham, who in this case is a type of God the Father, wishes to secure a bride for Isaac. Isaac here is a type of the Messiah and sends his servant Eliezer, who is a type of the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit that draws us unto the Messiah. The nation of Israel is regarded as being the chosen of the God of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, it says, For you are a holy people under the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. So we're chosen by the Father. In John chapter 15, verse 16, it says, You have not chosen me, we have not chosen Yeshua, but he has chosen us and ordained us that we should go and bring forth fruit for the kingdom of the God of Israel. It is the Holy Spirit or the Ruach HaKodesh that draws us or brings us to the Messiah. It is the role of the Holy Spirit to not only do this, but to convict the world of sin. In John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, it is written, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness. What's of righteousness? following the ways of the God of Israel, following the Torah, and of judgment. Messiah chose and loves his bride. The bridegroom chose the bride and lavished his love upon her, and she then returned his love. In the same way, Messiah lavishes his love upon his bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it is written, Husbands, love your wives even as Messiah loved the congregation and gave himself for it. The bride of Messiah loves him. We can see this picture in Genesis 24. Rebekah consented to marry Isaac before she even met him. Today, believers in Yeshua the Messiah consent to be married to him and become his bride, even though we have never physically seen him. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, it is written, Whom having not seen, you love, and whom, though now you see him not, yet you believe. You rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Step number two, the bride price was established. A price would have to be paid for the bride. The agreed upon price is called in Hebrew a mohar. Yeshua, being the believer's bridegroom, paid a very high price for his bride. The price he paid for her was his life. 
Yeshua considered the price he had to pay for his bride before his death as he went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. In Matthew 36, in verse 39, it is written, And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He regarded the price and understood it was a large price to pay. Our Mohar, the price that Messiah paid for his bride, once again, is his life. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, it is written, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers. The tradition of your fathers is a reference to the oral law. We're not saved by following the tradition of our fathers, the oral law. We're saved by the blood of Yeshua, but with the precious blood of Messiah as a lamb without blemish and without spot. The bride then, because of the love that Yeshua showed to her, she ultimately loves him back with her life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, it is written, For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Step number three, the bride and groom are betrothed. Betrothal is the first of two primary steps of the biblical marriage. During betrothal, you are legally married, but you do not physically dwell with your bride. Betrothal in Hebrew is known as Kedushin. Historically, Yeshua betrothed himself to Israel at Mount Sinai. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, it is written, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus is the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your espousal or betrothal when you went after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. Then in Hosea chapter 2 verses 19 and 20 it is written, I will betroth you unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth you unto me in righteousness and in judgment and loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth you unto me in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. I want you to notice in Hosea chapter 2 when it says, I'm going to betroth you. This is stated, I'm going to betroth you after in Hosea chapter 1. It is said, I'm not going to show you any mercy and you are not my people. So he's entered into a new betrothal with the people who he called no mercy and not my people, which is a way of saying that he separated himself from her, divorced her, exiled her into the nations. But ultimately his love is so great that he is going to redeem her and enter into the betrothal. The betrothal comes about through the death of the Messiah on the tree. Whenever we accept his redemptive work in dying on the tree for the forgiveness of our sins, we become betrothed to him while living on this earth. Step number four, a betrothal contract is written. When the bride and groom are betrothed to each other, a written contract is drawn up known as a ketubah in Hebrew. The betrothal contract is called a shitrei erusin in Hebrew. The ketubah is the marriage contract that states the bride's price, the promises of the groom, and the rights of the bride. The groom promises to work for his bride, to honor her, support her, and maintain her truth, and to provide food, clothing, and the other necessities of life. Our ketubah is the Torah. The ketubah is the un 
unalienable right of the bride. Spiritually, the Torah or the word of the God of Israel, the Bible, is the believer's ketubah. And all the promises that are contained therein are for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it is written, For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, under the glory of God by us. Step number five, the bride must give her consent. When the God of Israel betrothed himself to Israel at Mount Sinai, the ketubah is seen as being the Torah. The children of Israel accepted the terms of the marriage by saying, I do. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 3, it is written, And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. This is also stated in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 8. We must say, I do, to Yeshua's marriage proposal to us. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it is written that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Yeshua and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, redeemed, delivered. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Step number six. Gifts are given to the bride. The rite of betrothal, or arusin, is completed when the groom gives something of value to the bride and she accepts it. The gift most often given today is a wedding ring. When the groom places the ring on the bride's finger, the rite of betrothal is completed. The gifts to the bride are symbols of love, commitment, and loyalty to her. Spiritually, the gift which the God of Israel gives to those who receive Yeshua is the indwelling Ruach HaKodesh, the indwelling Holy Spirit. When Yeshua ascended to heaven following his resurrection, he gave gifts to men. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, it is written, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Messiah. Wherefore he says, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. One of these gifts is the gift of righteousness. In Romans chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, it is written, For if by one man's offense death reigned by that one man, that being Adam, much more than that, they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Yeshua HaMashiach. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Another gift that is given to the bride is eternal life. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 it is written, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Yeshua HaMashiach our Lord. Next, we have the gift of grace. In Romans chapter 5 verse 12 and verses 14 and 15 it is written, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned, nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. 
For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more than that, the grace of God in the gift of grace, which is by one man, Yeshua HaMashiach, has abounded unto many. The next gift is the gift of faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it is written, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We also then have additional spiritual gifts, which are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, 4, and 8, as it is written. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you be ignorant. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these works that one in the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he wills. Next we need to discuss the cup of the covenant. Not only were gifts given to the bride, but the cup of the covenant was shared between the bride and the groom. In doing so, the couple drank from a common cup. In other words, they're one. What happens to one happens to the other. What happens to the other happens to uh, the other one. The cup is first given to the groom to sip and then given to the bride. This cup is known as the cup of the covenant. It's spoken of in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, as it is written. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a renewed covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant are they referring to there? A covenant that was written upon a stony heart. But... Which covenant they broke, because it was written upon a stony heart, although I was a husband unto them, says the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my Torah in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. A Torah written upon a heart of flesh. Yeshua refers to the cup of the covenant in Luke 22, verse 20, as it is written. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Step number seven. The bride is going to have a mikvah. Mikvah is a ceremonial act of purification by immersion in water. What in the Bible is likened unto water? The Torah or the word of the God of Israel. You're being immersed in obedience unto the ways of the God of Israel. Immersion indicates a separation from the former way of life, that is sin, to a new way of life, that is obedience unto the God of Israel. In the case of marriage, it indicates leaving an old life, that is a single life, for a new life, that is being married with your spouse. We can see this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, where there it explains the marriage of Adam and Eve. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, where the marriage between Adam and Eve is a type and a foreshadow of the marriage between Messiah and his bride. Redeemed Israel, when they came out of Egypt, had a mikvah. Immersion in the mikvah is considered spiritual rebirth. 
when Yeshua betrothed himself to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, the children of Israel were immersed. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, it is written, Now I passed by you and looked upon you. Behold, your time was the time of love. And I swear unto you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord, and you became mine. Then washed I you with water. The bride of Messiah is immersed in the Holy Spirit or the Ruach HaKodesh. In Acts chapter 11 verses 15 and 16 it is written, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit or the Ruach HaKodesh. Step number eight. The bridegroom departed the bride and went back to the father's house to prepare the bridal chamber. At this point, the bridegroom leaves for his father's house to prepare the bridal chamber for his bride. It is understood to be the man's duty to go away to be with his father, build the house, and prepare for the eventual wedding. Before he goes, he will make a statement to his bride. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I will return again unto you. Spiritually, Yeshua said these same words in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. It is written, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. Step number nine. The bride is consecrated and set apart for a period of time while the bridegroom is away building the house. Before the bridegroom could go and get the bride, the groom's father had to be satisfied that every preparation had been made by his son. Only then could he give permission to the son to go and get the bride. In other words, while the bridegroom was working on the bridal chamber, it was the father who okayed the final bridal chamber. The bridegroom did not know when the father would declare the bridal chamber fit and send him to go get the bride. In Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 34, we are exhorted to be always be prepared for the coming of the bridegroom, that is Yeshua. But of that day and that hour knows no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house, and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house comes, at evening, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. That is not being obedient and following the ways of the God of Israel. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. The bride is expected to wait eagerly for her bridegroom. In the mind of the bride, the bridegroom could come at any time, even in the middle of the night or even at midnight. 
Therefore, she had to be ready at all times. Yeshua referred to this when he gave us the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, where they were commanded to keep their lights burning at all times. While waiting for her bridegroom to come, the bride had to have thought to herself, Is he really coming back for me? Is he really going to keep his word? When can I expect him to come back and receive me? Step number 10. The bridegroom would return with a shout. Behold, the bridegroom comes. And the sound of a ram's horn or a shofar would be blown. The time of the return of the bridegroom could be at any time, even at midnight. What's the spiritual connection of midnight? The tribulation period. When the bridegroom came, he came with a shout, Matthew 25, verse 6, and with the blowing of a trumpet, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. The marriage will have a sacred procession. For this reason, the bridegroom will enter the hoopah or the marriage canopy first. When the bridegroom approaches the hoopah, the cantor will chant, Blessed is he who comes. Blessed is he who comes is an idiomatic expression which means welcome. Yeshua said that he would not return until these words were spoken. In Matthew 23:39, it is written, For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth until you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Step number 11, the bridegroom would return for his bride usually in the middle of the night to go to the bridal chamber where the marriage would be consummated. The bride and groom will then go to the wedding chamber where the marriage will be consummated. They will stay in that wedding chamber traditionally for seven days or a week. At the end of the seven days, the bride and the groom will come out from the wedding chamber. In Joel chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, it says, Blow a shofar in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Step number 12. There will be a marriage supper for all the guests invited by the father of the bride the bride and groom will be in the wedding chamber for traditionally seven days when the bride and the groom initially went into the wedding chamber historically in the days of ancient israel the friend of the bridegroom stood outside the door all the assembled guests of the wedding gathered outside waiting on the friend of the bridegroom to announce the consummation of the marriage which was relayed to him by the groom. John the Immerser, John the Baptist, referred to this in John chapter 3, verse 29. At the signal that was thus given, great rejoicing broke forth. The marriage was consummated on the first night, Genesis chapter 29, verse 23. The bloodstained linen from this night was preserved. It was proof of the bride's virginity. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 13 through 21. The home of the bride is Jerusalem. She had the choice of living where she wanted her home to be. And of course, you're going to choose the best place for your home. And where's that best place? 
Jerusalem. On the wedding day, the bridegroom is seen as a king and the bride as a queen. The home of the bride was Jerusalem, and it was the bridegroom who came to the bride to dwell with her. It is from Jerusalem that the believers in Yeshua will rule and reign with him during the Messianic era. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it is written, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The eternal home of Messiah's bride is the new Jerusalem. During the times of the new heavens and the new earth, which is spoken about in Isaiah 66, verses 22 and 23, and also Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3, the eternal home of Yeshua's bride will be the city of Jerusalem. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it is written, But you've come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Now in Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 and 10, it is written, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, saying, Come hither, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and a high mountain. And he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Will you say I do to Yeshua's marriage betrothal to you? What is your decision? Will you accept him? into your heart and your life and make him your personal Lord and Savior? To everyone who does, you have been invited and been given an invitation to be his bride. It is the longing of those who have accepted Yeshua into their hearts and their lives and who are currently betrothed to him to have him return for his bride. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 17 and verse 20, the bride says, Come. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that hears say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. What is the water of life? It's Yeshua the Messiah. It's the outpouring Holy Spirit. And it is following Torah and Spirit and in truth. Revelation 22, verse 20. He which testifies these things says, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Yeshua. This is going to conclude our teaching on understanding the biblical wedding. We can see from these things that the reason why the heavens and the earth were created is because the God of Israel wanted to have a dwelling place among and with mortals. This was ultimately going to be accomplished through Yeshua the Messiah, who was going to enter into marriage relationship with the house of Jacob at Mount Sinai, where they was going to receive in the marriage proposal a commitment to follow and be obedient to him, which is to follow his 
Torah. And at Mount Sinai, there was a betrothal that was made. And ultimately, in order for there to be a completion of the marriage, then there is the physical dwelling with your mate. And ultimately, we're going to have the completion of that stage of the marriage when Messiah returns and rules and reigns from Jerusalem with a redeemed house of Jacob because his original wife at Mount Sinai committed adultery. So he lays down his life to forgive her of her sin and her adultery. And by accepting his redemptive work, that is his love for her, if she receives that love, then she becomes a part of his redeemed bride. And he has promised to live and dwell with her during the Messianic era, well, she will be a part of his kingdom and will be teaching the Torah to all nations with Yeshua, which will go forth from Jerusalem. Ultimately, we will be dwelling in all eternity with Yeshua in the new heavens and the new earth because the eternal domain of the bride of Messiah is the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. Ultimately, the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem, will descend out of heaven and comes to earth. That is the completion of the God of Israel dwelling with his people, wanting to be with his people and dwelling with his bride. So I pray that this message has been a rich blessing to you. And we need to remind ourselves and remember the words from 1 John chapter... 2 and verse 6. He who says he abides in him, he who says that he is a believer in Yeshua the Messiah, ought himself to walk, that is, live our lives as he walked. Shalom in Yeshua the Messiah. Amen.